0: Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and if you're counting from January 20th, this episode will air on President Biden's 100th day in office. And I have to say, at the 100-day mark, I'm finding it surprisingly and in some ways shockingly good news what has been happening in this administration. And I'm not sure of just how low my expectations were, but it's actually possible. I was trying to do the math yesterday and looking back over previous administrations that there's an argument to make that this is the most consequential Democratic administration since Lyndon Johnson and the war on poverty and the Great Society. And I mean, I, in some ways, you can't even really use 100 day marks. Not that it's a limited framework, right? It's that traditionally a new president comes in, 100 days, et cetera, et cetera. But there's so much that's like dramatically, I mean, different isn't even a big enough word, right? I mean, we have a one in a hundred year global pandemic. And actually I want to mention that uh, uh, Dr. Bob Walker from UCSF, who was on, a, on our podcast um, earlier in 2020, he's doing a podcast where he has one about the pandemic, and he's talking about what it's like coming out of a pandemic. And he has somebody who's an expert on 1918, somebody who's an expert on polio, and that's actually quite interesting and instructive. And so you've got that framework, which is like a historical, unique piece. And then you've got, you know, coming out of the most aggressively unapologetic white nationalist Confederate president since probably Andrew Johnson, if not Andrew Jackson. But in those, because of those contexts and because of that, that, that background and the unprecedented nature of all this and biden's history frankly as being somebody fairly cautious and timid and and moderate that's what i expected and yet when they have all the reason in the world to go small and be timid they're going big and being bold and we'll get into that in the into the podcast about the different things that they're doing but in many ways in terms of the fundamental assumptions around what government should be doing how we should be looking at the economy, et cetera, this been like a quiet revolution going on with very little fanfare. And so obviously, right, we have not yet overcome, but, you know, I think we're able to actually dream about and think about the kind of society that we want to see and, and and things are being brought into play that I did not anticipate would be on the table. So we'll get into all of that. And joining me for that conversation is my co-host, Charlene Chang, and our favorite data doctor dr julian martinez ortega both of whom have been holding it down as parents during lockdown and with potentially uh light at the end of the tunnel so we'll see how they are navigating that whole dynamic as well greetings to you both and charlene you want to help us get into today's topics
1: Sure thing. Hey, Steve, I keep uh, thinking about Biden, imagining if he had listened to that one podcast episode where you were saying, welcome to the age of white moderate grandpa. And he's there thinking now, all right, who you call a white moderate grandpa now? Because, you could argue
0: maybe only white moderate grandpa could get away with all this.
1: I could argue that. And um, you know what? And We're here for it. I'll take it. And um, I'm really looking forward to today's conversation because it's all good news that we're going to be talking about. On that front, it's super refreshing because, you know, sometimes during many of our episodes, we've had to keep it real. And there were a lot of hard topics to talk about and not necessarily all good news. But today, it's all good news that we're going to be sharing and breaking down and giving insight to So as you mentioned, Steve, today, we're going to discuss some of the recent news that's been really affirming for many of us around the country and remind people why elections are so important and that they absolutely do matter. I just get so frustrated with people who, over the years, I've heard, oh, well, they don't really matter, elections, and this is really proof that elections make all the difference. We are going to take a brief look at Biden's first 100 days and talk about the American Families Plan— the confirmation hearings, and will give an update on reparations, namely HR 40, the bill to commission a study on reparations for African Americans. Before we turn to all that, Steve, I actually just wanted to quickly ask you about something that has made headline news this earlier this week, which is that as the result of the 2020 census, certain states are going to gain or lose seats in the next Congress. Namely, I had heard that it's Texas and Florida that will gain more House of representative seats and that in California and New York, they will be losing some seats.
0: Yeah, so big picture, right, that this, well, I have this slide I do sometimes in, uh, in speeches and I say, the U.S. did not always, was not always a majority white country. And it started out with uh, the first data point is at zero. Such as like before 1607, right? Then yeah. it became a majority white country over the next couple centuries. But even you know, since that whole time period, as late as 1965, when the Immigration Act was passed, the United States people of color comprised 12 percent of the population. They are now 40 percent of the population, and that's transforming this country's politics to the great you know, dismay of many of the conservatives and and, and the right-wing people. And so this census is going to have and affirm all these different types of data. And most of that population growth is taking place in the South and the Southwest, right? The former uh, slave-holding region, where most African-Americans still are, and then the land that used to be Mexico, right, in terms of the Southwest that was taken in the Mexican-American War in the 1800s and so what we are seeing since the whites only signs were taken down in 1965 in the immigration uh, reform act is the diversification of the population and this is continuing to propel itself but the media can't quite keep up and so they're keep saying like oh these are these republican strongholds right so the washington post article says new census numbers shift political power south to republican strongholds
1: that's right that's what i read that one too
0: right so then i replied with my uh snarky twitter voice i said or and i'm just spitballing here maybe what this data shows is that the population in southern states is changing to the extent that they won't be republican strongholds much longer you know kind of like georgia and arizona going democratic that's right so that's the people are missing. They're behind the curse. Like, oh, these in the past, these have been Republican places. But the very reason that Georgia and Arizona did flip is because of these population changes that are now showing up in this data. So I actually think it's very encouraging for the changes in those places. And it affirms the fundamental analysis that the South, the Southwest, Georgia, Arizona, Texas, Florida, North Carolina, those are the places that are going to drive political change within this country in the future. And that's ultimately a a very hopeful sign because those places are getting more uh, members of Congress is because their people of color population is growing. And that is going to be the cornerstone for the new American majority in the 2020s and beyond.
1: Great, thanks for for answering my question because I was definitely trying to wrap my head around reading different articles with different takes, but also thinking about what we know about places like Georgia and Virginia and parts of the South Okay, so let's start our main conversation today by talking about President Joe Biden's American Families Plan, aka, like I said, who you call in moderate now. (laughs) Biden is set to address a joint session of Congress on April 28th, which means by the time this episode comes out, it will have taken place, the joint session of Congress. Still in flux is Biden's American Families Plan, which could amount to more than $1 trillion of new spending and tax credits for get ready for this, education, child care, worker benefits, and more. In total, it's expected to range somewhere between $1.5 and $1.8 trillion. This plan is the next part of Biden's Build Back Better three-part agenda, which, according to the White House website, is designed to rescue, recover, and rebuild the country. Build Back Better includes three plans, the American Rescue Plan, which was the $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill that was passed last month, the American Families Plan, and then the American Jobs Plan, which is a $2 trillion job and infrastructure plan, also announced last month, which would address transportation, infrastructure, housing, and caretaking. Julie, I wanted to turn to you and have you tell us a little bit more about the American Families Plan.
2: Sure. it's uh, It's exciting stuff. So according to uh, the New York Times' Jim Tankersley, some in the administration are calling this a, quote, human infrastructure plan. And the idea behind it is that it would invest hundreds of billions of dollars in things like universal pre-K, expanded subsidies for childcare costs, national paid leave program, which is huge, and um, free community college tuition which is something we've been hearing about for quite a while now. One of the most important things in the bill is the expanded tax credit for parents, and this would provide families with children a monthly payment, and um, it would be paid for by increasing taxes on the wealthiest Americans, right? So it's that whole thing that we've heard the Biden folks talking about where nobody who makes uh, less than $400,000 a year would be seeing a tax hike to cover these costs. So originally, this is a tax credit that was a temporary part of that first economic package that you described, Charlene, but it's now being extended through 2025. And in fact, some lawmakers want to make it a permanent credit and not even give that 2025 limit.
1: You and I were talking briefly before we were on and just saying how totally amazing all this is to hear, especially for those of us who are parents, who it's just I don't know that I ever thought I would live to see so many of these policies being proposed that center families and support families this way. And, you know, in my mind, like Steve had mentioned earlier, it only took a once in a lifetime pandemic, ousting of a white nationalist fascist in the White House for our country to then swing all the way to the other side and finally do the right thing for people in this country, finally do the right thing for families with children and treat them as the national priority that they are and to provide basic support, which, by the way, many countries, if not, I think most countries that are similar to ours, provide this type of support for families. They've been doing this forever. Uh, I wanted to quote, you were talking about lawmakers calling for making this credit permanent. The lawmakers, like Senator Cory Booker, recently released a joint statement saying, quote, expansion of the child tax credit is the most significant policy to come out of Washington in generations. And I totally agree. like me, I'm just still wrapping my head around that this could be a reality and could become a permanent reality. Uh, you have a, is he a tween now? Yeah, how old oh, is Oh, he's a son? full-on teen. He's a full-on teen. <laughs> See how the years go by. I still picture him when you would share pictures when he was younger. How old is he now? He's
2: 16. Oh yeah, he's gosh. about to go take his learner's permit test. So. I still oh my remember gosh. him. He's driving.
0: I, I remember him in 2008, we were trying to lay a rug in a condo in D.C. and he would lie down on oh. the rug and roll himself over on the rug to smooth out any parts so that was
1: (laughs) yes i just want to check with you julie like how does how is this landing for you learning about you know this these proposals and these changes um and so i i I, it's incredible
2: i mean like you said it is hard to believe in some ways um i think that that for a lot of people you know, they don't realize how much just a few hundred dollars can make for your average family in terms of, you know, cost to take care of kids and, you know, help them develop and have access to things that we want to think of as being just basic in this country, like, you know, the ability to sign them up for a soccer class or, or, you know, join a little baseball team or whatever. I mean, those things cost money. And it's really, you know, it it always bothers me to see so many working families and people who, you know, have just basic middle-class jobs, really struggling to be able to provide those things for their kids, right? Being able to even, you know, take them to the beach once or twice in the summer. For a lot of folks, we take that for granted, but so many people have been living really, really close to the line. That's um, right. Even though they're, they're working hard, they did all the right things. And so it's about time but I'm still sort of in a bit of disbelief that even the part that we got past, much less the possibility that it'll be extended through 2025 or even beyond that. I mean, that's just fantastic. Yeah, I'm definitely thinking about I mean we we both of us are families, you know.
1: I think I can speak for your family too. Ultimately, you know, we have a lot of privileges and And the kind of resources that many families don't have. But I remember over the pandemic reading articles where families were being faced with having to make choices like properly feed the kids. And even by proper, I'm sure that definition is a very low bar, but get food to feed all the children or keep the lights on or keep the heat Mm on. Um, And so we are talking about, uh, I mean, a couple hundred dollars for families like that is going to make a huge difference in being able to barely survive and keep kids healthy to being able to at least have a feeling of not constantly being stressed mm-hmm. about how they're going to uh, make how they're going to make it and and yes for, and then for a lot of other families and they can bring them to the next level which is to get you know added maybe support maybe some babysitting uh, you know I, that's what i think babysitting can be one of those costs that people who don't have children don't think about. But babysitting really adds up just to get if you want to go do something as an adult, like go vote or go see a doctor, but you can't bring all your children, then you know, you you want to hire a babysitter, but that's money.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, Steve, I wanted to check with you. We often talk about what social justice in this country really entails and what it looks like. And how is this landing for you learning about the tax credit and how it fits into the overall fight for social justice.
0: Yeah, no, I think we need more superlatives in our language, right? <laughs> because it's like there's so much happening at such great consequence that I think we can lose sight of how big a deal this is, right? So we get to talk about it gets talked about in the media, it's like, oh, it's just tax credits and this and that and the other. And so, you know, before long, the, you know, uh, non Dr. Martinez eyes can uh, glaze over. But this goes to the core of. Frankly, who we are as a society and who we are as a people and what are our what are our priorities? And then how do you structure your economy and the, and the economic assumptions around what's important to you? And this is a dramatic shift. And that's what i was talking about in the opening. This is a shift we have not seen since uh, LBJ launched the war on poverty and the Great Society in terms of what's important. Right. So when Obama came on, it was an economic crisis. There was all this. Uh, we need to have a, a relief package, an emergency relief package and this and that. And then they consciously whittled it down below a trillion dollars because that was like the psychological number you could not you know, exceed in terms of what the economy and the country could handle. We're on multiple trillion dollar relief packages now. And so just at that level, trying to understand that. And then the other thing is that the, the Obama administration was so fearful of like uh, economic theory, and these different Wall Street constraints and inflation and whether the bond market's going to fuel and our overall debt, et cetera, and these very abstract principles which constrained action. So, that, yes, we'd have to have child care for people. Yes, we have to take care of old people. Yes, we have to deal with human beings. But that has to all take second place to these abstract economic theories. That is not how this administration is proceeding. And they are moving much more, like you're saying, other countries do these things. She talks about the thing about having actual social policy in terms of what the role of the federal government around what should it be doing to provide for its citizens. It's a dramatic economic theory transformation if we're actually seeing. So I just think that that is underappreciated in this moment. And it makes so much more possible as we think about What are we going to be doing going forward in terms of public policy? So are we going to provide these basic needs from child care to senior care to free higher education? I mean, it's like these are things that were considered ridiculously radical and revolutionary. And now they're just unfolding in a fashion that's occurring in a very matter of fact manner. And it's just hard for me to wrap my brain around it. And I don't have sufficient superlatives to truly describe what we're seeing.
1: I keep getting this picture in my mind where if, if it's an image of uh, parts of society or challenges that have been long neglected and it's Oprah standing there she's doling out the you know, trillion for you a trillion for you <laughs> you get a trillion you get a trillion dollars and you get a trillion dollars um and that's uh, it is what it feels like in the best possible way that finally that this country is waking up and And it is normalized like you said there's not you know there's this is happening and it's just really exciting times so let's move on to some more good news so we'll talk about um the latest senate confirmations and we're really looking forward to getting to know these individuals more and i wanted to start with vanita gupta Vanita Gupta, who led the civil rights division of the Department of Justice under the Obama administration, and most recently served as the President and CEO of the Leadership Conference for Civil and Human Rights, is making her return to the DOJ. On April 21st, Congress voted to confirm Vanita as Associate Attorney General, making her the first civil rights lawyer and woman of color to hold the third highest position In the justice department steve i know that you know vanita personally and julie i don't know if you know her but i wanted to check with both of you what you both think of her confirmation and what can we expect from the doj now that vanita is in the leadership position
0: yeah no it's like um it's it's a further the implications of it just in terms of like who gets to hold these positions right is that that's also what's very significant right i mean i i i you know, and it's not even a joke when I say that the right wing takes their, you know most far-reaching change people and puts them on the Supreme Court. So we roll us all the way back. We take our um, the Democrats, their far-reaching change people and tend to distance themselves whether well, they're too radical, they're too controversial, We don't want to be associated with them or ruffle any feathers, et cetera. And that's who we tend to put into these different types of positions. So to take somebody whose whole life has been about being a social justice champion and advocate and change maker and you know um, person who challenges the system, that and putting them in charge of the civil rights um, division of the Department of Justice is a very dramatic departure in terms of structurally, in terms of who and what we can expect to hold these positions, and also in terms of what she's going to do. I mean, her whole life has been about really being, you know, fighting against injustice. And she was at our previous job, the Leadership Conference. They helped to create and run this organization, this coalition, right? All Voting is Local. It was one of the main entities in the country fighting against voter suppression, which there was an enormous uh, coup-like um, level coming from Trump and them. And they helped to coordinate a lot of these different activities all over the country at the local level to beat that back. And that's what her track record has been and so you know as as you know well Shirley. i'm you know trying to finish this book on how we win the civil war and as i do the research around it it just continues to show that the descendants of the confederacy are actively trying to roll back to that point in time and if we're going to overcome that we have to have people who are fierce fighters on our side and so bringing someone like vanita into that position vanita herself putting her there um, is going to be extraordinarily significant in terms of actual public policy and social change and putting the federal government behind issues of justice and inequality. And she's just a great person as well as a great symbol. So having a woman of color in that role is going to be beneficial for all those uh, representational reasons as well.
2: Yeah, I would just add that you know you can't talk about her being confirmed without, mentioning the resistance to that confirmation that happened and the the fight that the Republican senators put up. I think they recognize the significance of somebody like Vanita being in that position. And they understood that it was important for them to try to stop that. And Unfortunately, you know, because elections have consequences, they were not able to at this point in time. But it's it's really it's not something we can take for granted at all that we'll be able to get people of her background uh, orientation toward the law and the purpose of the law, the purpose of the government and carrying out the duties of the uh, Justice Department and whatnot. You know, those are things that it's a fight to get somebody like that in there. Another person who is up for confirmation
1: by the Senate is civil rights attorney, Kristen Clark. She's the other nominee for the DOJ that we're paying attention to. Kristen Clark, who is African-American, if confirmed, would become the first Senate-confirmed woman of color to lead the DOJ's civil rights division. Both Kristen Clark and Vanita Gupta have been just grilled, by the way, by Senate Republicans. No shock Uh, although super annoying, for, um, you know, they've both been grilled for, by the way, their past comments made around the movement calling for the defunding of the police. Republicans who oppose Kristen Clark's nomination have been referring to a June 2020 op-ed in which Kristen Clark wrote for Newsweek, where she said, quote, one of the best ways we can honor George Floyd is by putting in place police reforms that reduce the footprint of police officers in communities. Steve, what are Republicans afraid of besides strong? Besides women
0: of color. Women of
1: color, <laughs> yes. uh, but maybe that's it. You know, that's enough to scare the bejesus out of them. And why should the Senate vote to confirm Kristen?
0: Well, so She's in the same mold um, and tradition and uh, as Vanita, as a person who has a you know lifelong history and commitment and track record around justice and equality within this country for people of all backgrounds, which, you know, some parts at least of the constitution and the histories is what this country is supposed to stand for. And so her leadership at the Lawyers Committee been on the front lines of the fight, again, around expanding opportunity, expanding democracy, expanding issues of equality. And so she's been a real champion and leader. And so unquestioned, you know, stalwart within those different areas. So it really should be a no-brainer in theory um, certainly, for anybody who wants there to be greater democracy and equality in the country, and then that gets to the point around why they're opposing her. And it's it's we're at an interesting strategic moment within the country in terms of, particularly in terms of where the Republicans and the conservatives are going to go. And then, I mean, really, lost history. History is in 2012, is that after the Republicans lost, then there was a lot of soul searching around. What are they going to do strategically? What direction are they going to go? Particularly it relates to people of color, and so they had lost twice to a black man uh, who ran as the in the presidential election. There was a whole lot of discussion around we should get better on racial issues, et cetera. And it obviously Trump went in the opposite direction and built his whole campaign on attacking people of color, demonizing and whipping up white fears and insecurities. And so then ultimately culminating in the ku klux klan attempt of january 6th now i don't know which direction to go and so that's what's really playing itself out you you do not have people saying oh maybe we should have some relationship with and engagement with the 40 percent of the country that's people of color versus no we have to scare many white people as much as we possibly can and so that's where the basic republican mindset is at this point and that's and you know kristen falls in that vein and vanita and you know nira before her and so just attack point at get people scared about these strong women of color and that's their strategy such as it is air quotes strategy but that's what we're gonna to have to be watching is how this plays itself out and then the parallel to that is how resolute are the progressives and democrats going to be around embracing these communities and embracing issues of justice and equality and that will continue to be the strategic struggle and tension. That we're going to be grappling with in the months and years ahead
1: yeah I went, i've been really enjoying and learning so much reading your manuscript in progress for your book <laughs> and i've learned i mean the the stuff that i'm learning about the just egregious racism around you know civil war post-civil war period is just it's mind-blowing it's not surprising but it's just you capture you've done such great research and you have such concrete details and i just keep thinking about if those people were alive today to see, you know, who's rising up to power now, it's not just that, you know, probably one of their worst fears was the image of black men and men in color in power, but now to see the the rise of, you know, women of color, they probably, that probably never even crossed their mind, black women taking positions of power. um, Right. And I, I just love it. So speaking of how history unfolds and, and changes and wrongs are righted. Uh, Lastly, I wanted us to give a quick update on HR 40, a bill that would establish a commission of 13 members to study reparations proposals. For some of our newer listeners, I just wanted to remind or let them know that Democracy in Color was involved in a full court push for this bill last summer. We as a team really did a lot of work trying to elevate, first of all, letting people know what it was and how important it was. And uh, one of the things that we did is last July, July 2020, we had an episode titled Reparations 101. So if you haven't checked it out already, please do go check that out. We dove into the HR 40 bill and talked about its historical significance. We also launched a pretty big campaign calling out white Democratic members of Congress who hadn't supported the bill up until then, uh, you know, around July. And we were really pushing them. We had called that list the white list. We were calling them out on that list. And basically, the idea was that if you were on the list, you wanted to try to get off of it as soon as possible. And so, yeah, it was a bit of, you know, calling out, getting them, making them uncomfortable. But we would like to think that between our work and many organizations and many individuals work, that this is um, where we've arrived. So, the good news is that on April 14th, the House Judiciary Committee voted to advance H.R. 40, and it's on track for a vote in the full House of Representatives in the next coming weeks. The bill currently has 184 co-sponsors. And again, this is something that if I really take a moment to think about, I didn't think I would see this in my lifetime, even us getting to this step around reparations in this country, even just to get to have the House agreed to study it and and move this bill forward so steve just wanted to check with you how you're feeling you know we worked remember i mean as a team democracy color we worked so hard to get this passed and now also also with little fanfare here we are
0: right yeah well 40 years of little fanfare i know right, in terms of actually getting to this point point. and then also everybody has to bear in mind that this is just a bill to study i know right it's a bill to study the racial wealth gap within this country and how it came to be and what should be done about it so if, bear with me for a second i mean this might sound like an odd you know diversion but like i've gotten all into in recent weeks uh, uh container ships right and so i can look out from my house and i looked out in san francisco bay and there's a different all these different ships and i've and i've seen this for, for years it's like what are these ships what are they actually doing so i just started looking into it and realized that they're part of really this international shipping trade business good to get from Asia to this country, then on a ship, they take it off a ship and they put it on at a port and then they put it on a truck or a train and then it gets ultimately winds up, you know, at your doorstep. And so I'm looking at these different ports. So Oakland has a port. So that's why these things are outside my house. I work across the bay from Oakland. Understanding ports better and watching these different videos about it. One of the major ports in this country is in Savannah, Georgia. And so now they take, right, container ships, et cetera. But Savannah, Georgia became a major port when they were importing black human beings from Africa. And so it's just the the interconnections of the history of this country, as well as the wealth generation. It's not even getting to the whole issue around cotton and picking cotton and how central that was. There's a book called Empire of Cotton that gets into all of that to the U.S. economy. And so we have this profound racial wealth gap in this country for a reason. And it's a contemporary racial wealth gap. And so what are we going to do about it? And all with this HR 40 does is say, let's study this. First, they couldn't even get a sponsor when John Conyers was introducing it back in the 79 and the early 80s. So now they have 184 co-sponsors. So that's like a huge piece. And um, it actually finally got out of committee. And that is a prospect that will get out of the house and could get to a democratic controlled Senate which has never happened in the 40 plus years, but just bear in mind, we're just talking about a study. But that is why it's strategically significant, is that are the top entities and the top institutions in this country going to facilitate a dialogue and discussion about racial justice in America and about why we have this racial wealth gap and about what is owed. And that is a conversation we've not even been able to have. And HR 40 is playing a critical role about facilitating that conversation about what we should be doing on this.
2: And at the federal level, like you said, we're just getting the conversation started, and that's what this bill will do for us. But there's some good news in that at the local level, things are actually further along. So um, in keeping with the theme of good news for this episode, it's uh, important to lift up the incredible thing that just happened uh, last month in Evanston, Illinois, which is a, a Chicago suburb. They became the first city in the entire country to make reparations available to um it's black residents for past discrimination and lingering effects of slavery so there's actually checks being written qualifying households there could receive uh like up to twenty five thousand dollars to put toward things like home repairs down payments on a house interest payments on property and whatnot so i mean that's a huge advancement i think those will probably be the kind of things that people look to as models when it does come time hopefully sooner rather than later, to start to craft legislation at the federal level.
0: Yeah, and I just want to tie in this in too, right, as we're looking at what's happening in the news what these current events and what the different connections to them are, right? So we just had the verdict in the uh, Derek Chauvin's trial around the, his murder of George Floyd, which was almost a year ago. And that led to all these different protests and it led to all this different reflection around what do we do about issues of systemic anti-Black racism in this country. And a lot of different ideas and proposals were put forward then. And so it's there's a certain temporal, I guess, symmetry to all of this. Like there's a great op-ed that Angela Blackwell, uh, PolicyLink did, and we should link to that, that talks about different types of solutions that could start to get at this, right? She was saying that you could forgive mortgage interest for African-Americans, given all of the historical exclusion from access to the wealth building that in, the, in, in the real estate world. So things like that are the kinds of things which can become part of the conversation and should become part of the conversation. We're saying that we've, we've expanded the dialogue on the economic front around what are our assumptions and our priorities. We should now also be expanding it in terms of the racial justice front as well
1: and i just want to say i know that we're you know almost out of time but i just wanted to say before we leave that i just feel like it's such a new feeling each day to wake up to all sorts of good news that we didn't ever think that we would see and what it's such stark contract to i just remember during the trump era i would wake up dreading to look at my phone because i would just be preparing for the reality, what the reality was that every day I wake up to news about some group being targeted for attack, some group being dehumanized, the vast majority at the time it was people of color or women um, in, you know, all these groups being dehumanized in our society. And now it's like every morning when I check the news, I go, oh, look at this. The government cares about its people, more news about how they're trying to help people, all sorts of people, everybody. And it is—it's um, just a great feeling. We many of us worked so hard to get here. I am really trying to stay optimistic that we can take advantage of this time and not not lose ground and not take it for granted. But it is um, something I just feel really grateful for, and also try, trying to keep in mind how very close we got to not having this reality.
0: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, we had an actual violent coup attempt to block the transition of power in this country on January sixth of this year. Mm-hmm. Right, and a hundred plus Republicans shrugged their shoulders and voted to support the coup, mm-hmm. which is shocking until you start studying the nineteenth 19th, 19th century, when you see that they could not even pass the bill to end the the constitutional amendment to end slavery out of the out of the House of Representatives. It failed, the Thirteenth Amendment they had to go back and amend it and bring it back again, just saying that we should not have slavery. So these fights, none of this uh, is taken for granted. But as we've been talking about on this episode, there are great and significant things that are happening. So I'm glad we have a chance to pause and appreciate them, both in terms of the, the policies and the structural things that are happening with the economy, and then putting in place people. That's an important part of making structural change, right? The people that they um, you know, Vanita and hopefully Kristen and others um, will be able to move this forward. So hundred days in. And um, I think we have to say so far, so good. Right. So keep it going. Um, yeah. Keep it going. We'll be check it 200 days, right. See where we're at. So that's all the time we have for today. Well, thank you for listening to democracy in color with Steve Phillips. Thank you, Dr. Martinez Ortega for joining us. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P Tweets, and finding us at Democracy in Color on Facebook, or signing up for our weekly newsletter at democracyincolor.com. If you listen to our podcast on iTunes, please leave us a rating and a comment. Thank you to those who have commented. We really read those and appreciate it. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker, with support from Charlene Chang, Fola Onifade, and April Elkier recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio of San Francisco. Thanks for listening and keep the faith.